The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, church. How y'all doing? Y'all look good today. Grab your Bibles. Turn to the book of Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. Once you find Colossians 2, you might want to hang a left and put a bookmark or one of those little ribber thingy, ri, ribber, ri, ribbon thingies in, uh, in Luke chapter 11 as well. We'll also be in Luke chapter 11 this morning. Colossians chapter 2, Luke chapter 11. A couple of announcements while you're doing that. Um, Pacific Bible College on March 17th, Friday, March 17th, um, here in the gym, actually, here at Cascade High School, is going to be hosting a vocation versus occupation seminar from a biblical and kingdom perspective. Dr. Steve Henderson is the keynote speaker. He'll be presenting on how the Christian occupation is a God-given opportunity to bring biblical truth into the culture and how God's people must see their occupation as a critical choice in ministry, not just a job. It's a free seminar. Um, Mike Robinson, who is the president of um, Pacific Bible College, is one of the shepherding elders here at our church, and and we were talking with him about it. It looks like it's just going to be an awesome thing, so it's free. Um, There's more info in your bulletin thingy that you got when you came in, or you can stop by the Connect desk on your way in, but encourage you guys to be a part of that. I'm sure it would be a really rich time. Um, And then a couple of other announcements. Man Camp is coming up. Um, It's what we do with Acts 29. We get together with all of the different churches from um, the Acts 29 Oregon, but also the Northwest, and um, it's at Washington Family Ranch, which is just the most amazing camp facility you'll ever go to. Um, It's April... 28th through the 30th, but early bird pricing ends at the end of March, right? Yes. So if we would uh, like to encourage you guys to get signed up online, you can stop by the connect desk and get info there. It's probably in the bulletin thing too. Make sure you get signed up on that. We always have a big crowd that goes to that and it's really, really good. Uh, Flip side of 50 has two or three events coming up. Um, they're like our youth group, a little bit older and on steroids, apparently like they just do everything, snowmobiling and skiing. And I don't know, they're probably like rock climbing in Yosemite next week or something. Um, I don't know. I guess you get to an age, you're like, I lived a good life. Let's try it. I don't know. I don't know what you guys are doing, but, but you guys are amazing. So, so awesome. So make sure you check that out and get involved. And then also daylight savings time is next Saturday. Now this is the bad one. Okay. And I know people argue that with me. It's not the bad one because we get more daylight. You lose an hour sleep. It's the bad one. Okay. We'll worry about good the next day. It's the bad night. That's what I'm talking about. So clocks go forward, right? Spring ahead, forward next week, um, just to let you know. So anyway, if you would, Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to be in verse 16 through 23. That's right. I'm going to start in 16 and go all the way to 23. And you're either proud of me or nervous. It's one of the two. Um, if you would stand with me in honor of the, the reading of the Lord's word. Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 says the following. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind, 
and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nur- gr- excuse me, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to come, gather together the redeemed people of Christ and study your word. And now, Lord, I just pray that we would be bowed before your word, that your word would have its way in us. That God, this text, which can be uncomfortable to our flesh, uncomfortable to our pride, I pray God it would reign in us because it's the words of our King. I pray that it would produce fruit, freedom, and joy in you, Jesus. And I pray, God, that we would all have a spirit of humility as we approach this word, that you, Lord, would lord over the text and not the other way around, and that we might just be submitted, that we might grow, and that we might be blessed, trusting you that, Lord, you lead us into greater and greater joy. So may that accomplish, be accomplished here this morning. May we focus on you. May everything we do be about you this morning, Jesus. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, you may have a seat. So uh, we're, we're closing out this section of Colossians, and things are going to shift a little bit next week. Next week we start on kind of the Christian living section of Colossians chapter 2. Um, this week is sort of the conclusion of an argument that's been going on now for a few weeks. So there's elements of what we're going to talk about this morning um, that are going to feel uh, uh, maybe somewhat redundant. I hope it won't feel redundant. I hope it's just a conclusion and a, a solidifying of the things that we've looked at. But if you ever felt like Jeff just keeps preaching the same sermon, you'll probably totally think that this week in particular. Um, it's not a church growth sermon. Um, and sometimes in the past, these sorts of teachings have been church shrink sermons, um, which this service, we need some extra seats. So we love you. Thanks for hanging and uh, hope, you, hope you find a good church. No, um, I don't think that'll be the case actually today. Um, but here's the reality. Paul is in this text. He's combating false teaching that is, that is coming in and that is permeating the church that has a form of godliness to it. So people are clinging to it. And when we grab things, especially things of a spiritual nature, there can be a, a clinging and a holding and a tearing when those things are removed from us. And this is, this is Paul's goal. He's, he's talking to this church and he wants them to be able to say, though it's before this hymn was written, he wants them in the end to be able to say, my hope is built on nothing less Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's it. That's all he wants them to stand on. That's all he wants them to cling to and fight for. But these other things are coming in um, that are threatening some of this. And so as a background to what we're looking at today, the theme, if you will, for everything Paul's saying, everything he's speaking is coming from this thought beginning in verse 6 of chapter 2 where he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, and see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, 
according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Stand on Jesus, no matter who says what. If they're not talking about Jesus, don't let them pull you off this foundation. Don't let them build a different foundation for you to stand on. You stay here. Fight here. Always stand on Jesus. This is his goal. This is what he's trying to accomplish in this teaching. And so with that in his background, he starts off here in verse 16 in the text we're looking at today. And he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. For these are the shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you over questions of food and drink. I've had people and been in discussions with people before that, that grab to this text when they're talking about things such as, for example, can Christians have alcohol or can Christians have this or that? That's not necessarily what he's talking to. That verse is coming in a second though, but this particular verse, we're talking about religious observances. So when he says food and drink, he doesn't mean, can I have this? Can I not have this? He means the idea of the Jewish practice of a kosher diet as part of their religious identity, their religious practice, okay? It's not like, is this a sin or is this not a sin? It's you have to adopt this particular lifestyle as part of your religious observances. And in addition to that, he's talking about new moons and Sabbath, which are are these Jewish festivals, feasts, and celebrations based on the Jewish calendar, Passover, things of that nature. This is what he's saying. Hey, church, let no one pull you from Jesus. Let no one pull you from Jesus. Make your identity Jesus, no, what, no matter what else anyone else comes in and tries to offer to you. And there's two different things that, are trying, uh, that people are trying to offer to them, two different places that we contend to, to sort of make our stand with regards to our identity. And in this one, he's talking about just religious observances in general. And you go, well, we don't have kosher diets. We don't have new moon Sabbath observances and things like that. So that doesn't apply to us. No, no, it applies completely to us because the idea is along the lines of this, that there are some people in the United States that genuinely believe that they are Christians because they go to church. There might be people, I hope not, but there might be people in this room right now that believe in their heart that you are a Christian because right now you're in church and you're wrong. Going to church does not make you a Christian any more than getting in an oven makes you a brownie. It doesn't work like that. Others would say, I'm a Christian because I write a tithe check. No, you're not. That's not what makes someone a Christian. And what he's saying is this, you're not going to build your Christian identity based on the Christian things you do. That's what he's saying. Now, I have to pause here for a second because I ended up in a conversation with someone actually even just last week about this. And, and I, I, I'm trying to be really, really careful here. And I know I get fired up sometimes preaching against religion and some of these sorts of things. Um, and, I, and I'm aware that sometimes I cannot balance it in such a way that people get misgiving. So I was in a conversation with someone last week and they were talking about the teaching and they were being super complimentary about it. And they made a comment at some point along the line where they said something about, and our obedience or what we do just doesn't matter. Is that true? Hear me, church. That's not true. Please do not go anywhere and quote Pastor Jeff as saying, what we do doesn't matter. That's not true. That would be heretical. That is unbiblical. That would directly contradict the teachings of Jesus Christ. 
It's not what I'm saying. But to think that we are Christians, that we gain favor with God, that we um, gain some sort of spirituality where we obtain God's love and favor because of the things we do is not true. It's not true. Now, does obedience matter? Yes, absolutely. But here's the idea. Christians obey. But they're not Christians because they obey. Does that make sense? So let me me put it this way. Um, Frogs hop. Rabbits are not frogs. But they hop. Doesn't matter. That's not the delineating issue between a frog and a rabbit. Do they hop? Just because they hop doesn't mean anything. Hopping is just something a frog does. It doesn't make it a frog. Does that make sense? Some of you are like, no. (laughs) Sorry. But this is the idea. It's not that our behavior doesn't matter. It's the foundation from which we obey. And and so if we are trying to say, my spiritual identity is wrapped up in what I do. I tithe, I go to church, I memorize Bible verses. um, I only listen to Caleb or K-Dove or whichever one of the K's you listen to. I only listen to the, I only do these, I do all these spiritual things. Therefore, look how godly and spiritual I am. I do all of these things and that's why God loves me because I do this stuff. That's not true. And Paul's saying, no, don't, don't buy into this. I am not, though, an antinomian. Antinomians believe that we've been saved by the grace of Jesus, and now that we've been saved by grace, the moral code, if you will, the the moral law no longer applies to us. We are totally free, and we have no obligation to even think about the moral code anymore whatsoever. I absolutely do not believe that. But Our ability to obey or not obey is not what determines whether we're actually saved or not. And it is not the regulatory measure by which God pours his love out on people. It doesn't have anything to do with us. It has to do with an alien righteousness that is given to us based on Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. Not on any of the things that we do. And so then our obedience kicks in after that. When we realize what he's done on our behalf in spite of us, our obedience is an act of worship and of gratitude and of just wanting to be like our father. Because the moral code and the law, it reveals to us God's character and his nature. So to say that the law doesn't matter anymore and we don't need to read it, we don't need to study it, we don't want anything to do with it, that's the very nature of the God who saved us. Of course it still matters. But the motivations behind what we do, and in this particular text here, Basing your identity and your standing before God on this, on behavior, on I go to church and I tithe and all these things, it doesn't change anything. So, so if you're like, God loves me and I'm a Christian because I go to church, that's not how it works. Um, the CEO Christians, as we call them, Christmas, Easter only Christians that are in our culture, they would go in a survey. If you were to do a given survey to someone and say, um, what is your faith? Christianity, Hindu, Muslim, Jewish, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They would check Christian because they go to church on Easter and on Sunday and they're wrong. Maybe that's their affinity. I like this one best, but to put your identity in that, It doesn't work. That's not how Christianity is. We don't obey to be Christians. 
So we'll get into more of that as we're going. Paul continues on. The first one, if we, get, if, we're, if we can be tempted to have our identity and our value before God based on our religious observances, well, the second one in verse 18, he says, now let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So, so if our identity isn't to be based on the things we do for God, there's those that would say our identity is based on maybe the things that we don't do for God. That's what asceticism means, the starving of the flesh. Like we, we will not enjoy these, these uh, pleasures that are out there. So I'm really serious about spiritual things, and I'm going to show that by not having anything to do with some of these other things. And we would say, well, that's asceticism, that's Gnostic, that's false religions. We don't do any of those kind of things as Christians, and that's just not true. As we've talked about the last few weeks, we say things like, Christians don't watch TV. Where's that in the Bible? That's made up. That's not there. It's, it's someone's conviction, or it's, well, if we watch TV, it starts out with Andy Griffith, but it's a slippery slope, and you know where you go from there. Next thing you know, it's Family Guy. Next thing you know, on and on and on and on. And next thing you know, it's porn, and you're going to hell. So we don't watch TV. Well, that's not in the Bible. Christians don't have alcohol. Really? There's a lot of New Testament stuff. It's going to be hard to read if you're saying that. Well, but it can lead to drunkenness. Well, drunkenness is a sin, but let's just, let's just be careful here and not suddenly start measuring our spirituality based on the things where we go, I'm so spiritual because I don't do that. And especially developing pride in that and looking down on other people and going, well, we don't have a TV in our house. Did you watch that movie? It's PG-13. We don't watch those things in our house. <laughs> JV Christian. This is what Paul's talking about. This idea that we are somehow basing like our spiritual rank or how God looks at us or thinking somehow what makes me loved by God and part of the family of God is that I don't do this and I don't do this and I don't do this and I don't do this. And Paul would say, that's, he, actually, he, he actually goes on. Look what else he says. Paul's going to address it even more. He says this. If you died, if you with Christ died to the elemental spirits of the world, then why is if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. He's saying, hey, um, you're not in the old covenant anymore, church. The old covenant was absolutely based on what you do. God introduces the law to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and he says, I am the Lord your God, thou shalt, and he goes through all the different elements of the Mosaic Covenant. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Here are the festivals, here are the feasts, here are the laws. Don't do this, all of this kind of stuff. And then he tells them, and you can read all this at the end of Deuteronomy. Then he says, if you do these things, you will. And there's all this blessing that just gets poured out. You're going to enjoy the fruits of the relationship that you have with me. I'm going to bless you. I'm your God. You're my people. It's going to be this awesome relationship. Then he says, but if you don't do them, if you fail to uphold your element or your part of the covenant, then you're going to experience cursings and you're going to be ripped from the land and you're going to, and on and on and on and on it is. And it's a covenant by which both parties, it's a bilateral covenant. Each side has things that I will do this and you will do this and together we will uphold the covenant. And that's the way the, that's the way it used to be. 
before Jesus came, did all the work for us, and now we're part of the new covenant in, in which God says in Jeremiah, I will be your God and you will be my people. What's our part? I will be your God and you will be my people. So what's the work that we have to do in the law? You will have no need that man teach you. I will put my stuff in your heart. I will be your God. You will be my people. Suddenly it's a completely different covenant. It's just based on the love, goodness, majesty of God, not on how well we're performing. And so he's saying to them, listen, you died and were raised with Christ in baptism. You were raised to a new way of living. Why are you now going back to the old way? Why do you keep going back and trying to live under this pressure, trying to earn this love and favor with God and position and pride issues with everybody around you um, as if that's even possible? You're, you're going back under a yoke that Christ died to free you from. Why are you doing that? Why are you letting people put this on you? And, and then look what he says about it next, verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no, how much? No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Please let these words sink in for a moment. Because the people there would say, but this seems to make sense. Mosaic law, covenant stuff, the Jewish background, staying away from these different things, starving the flesh to show God how spiritual I am, all this stuff. It seems there's, there's wisdom in that. It seems, seems to make sense. Well, Paul's already said earlier in this chapter, has he not, that he doesn't want them to be misled by what? Plausible arguments. Arguments that people are going to come in and say, hey, this seems right. And you're going to hear these things. And he even says it right here. There's going to be an appearance of wisdom to these things. Of course I should want to avoid these different things. Of course I want to honor God and stay away from this sin or do this thing. And, and man, maybe it makes sense that these things could be dangerous or whatever. And I, I want to, and, and he's, he comes in and says, it has no value. And what does he mean by that? Really? No value? So should we not have porn filters on our computer? Should we just drink whatever we want, not worry about laws or limits? Like, is that what he's saying? No, this is what Paul's saying. Please hear this, okay? The idea is this. Let's use, for example, lust as the temptation that someone's struggling with. There's a person who's just struggling with lust, and they're wrestling with it, and they go, I, I want to earn favor with God. I want to show how serious I am about, about my walk with God, my spirituality, all these things, and I'm going to do it by dealing with lust. And so here's how I'm going to go about it. And you go about the law, you go about self-starvation, you put all sorts of boundaries around yourself, you put the covenantized filter, and you do all of these sorts of things. In no point along there are you actually turning to and relying on Jesus. You're just putting, you're self-managing your behavior, Okay. Well, one of two things is, is going to happen. Uh, first of all, you're probably going to find that self-management of behavior and legalistic approaches to things like that never actually fix the problem. Um, if anything, your continued failures and then you're realizing that you can't let people know that you have continued failures will just make you sneaky with your sin. It's not going to fix it. The law never promised to fix sin. But let's say you're succeeding I've put all these boundaries around myself. I've done this. I've done this. Um, every time I get tempted, I slap myself and it hurts. So it snaps me out of my thing. Just whatever the case may be. And let's say you're succeeding. Well, the problem is, is you remove one sin. There's a whole bunch of others that are lined up to come in. Namely, in a situation like this, you're doing it on your own. You've pulled it off. Other people are struggling. Pride comes in. Pride is way harder to deal with than lust. 
And so this idea that we can somehow take things into our own hands, manage behavior, earn favor with God by dealing with all of these sorts of things, and never at one point actually turning and remembering that the foundation is what Jesus Christ has done and starting there. He's going, don't let anybody pull you away from this. Don't go, I need Jesus and covenant eyes and that'll make me a Christian. It's not true. Is there wisdom in some of those things? Sure. Is your identity and your faith based on that? Is that what makes you a Christian? Is that the foundation of your faith? Absolutely not. And so he's calling the church back to this understanding that what our faith depends on is not what we do, but what Christ did. And any successes we have spiritually, any victories we have over sin, any religious, uh, um, uh, what's the word you're applying for? Resume, our religious resume of all the things that we do well, all of those, any of that stuff that we do is by the grace of God, first of all. But actually the Bible even says our own righteousness is filthy rags. Why would we boast in that? And why would we build our identity in that? The Bible calls Christians to build our identity in the righteousness of Jesus. And and this is what it means by that. The idea is this. It's called double imputation. We and our sin is transferred to Christ. Christ's righteousness, his resume, is transferred to us. And that's the one we cling to. We don't cling to, look what I do, or look what I don't do. We cling to the righteousness of Jesus. And if we're experiencing successes and people are like, man, you're just nailing it. But you, we go, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's not about me. I'm not boasting in me. I am, by the mercy and grace of God, experiencing any sort of success. And any victories I have is because Jesus put his Holy Spirit in me. And he's growing me. And he's changing me. But it's all about Jesus. Everything goes back to Jesus. Does the behavior matter? Come on, 1030 service. Does the behavior matter? Yes, behavior matters. Of course we want to honor God with our behavior. But your identity is not built up. You're not a Christian because you're good. The Bible says you were dead and Christ has made you alive. And so it's Jesus that we esteem, not self. Now, we've talked about that pretty pretty straight up for three, four straight weeks now, right? You guys have heard all of this before, right? And you go, well, that's just Jeff. No, that's Paul. That's what the text says. Okay, well then it's just Paul. And let's just face it, in the New Testament, Paul's a cranky old man. I mean, he, he was a Pharisee, of course, so he's still got some tendencies, I'm sure. I know he's saved, but maybe he's still just cranky. This is just one of Paul's things, right? I want you to take a look at, at uh, the book of Luke chapter 11. Because if anything, Paul might understate the importance of this compared to what Jesus Christ himself said about this idea of religion versus faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the things that Jesus says in this text, when you think about it in the context of what we're talking about here in Colossians, are harsh and beautiful. So here's the story. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus has been on the scene for a little while. He's been teaching. He's been teaching about the kingdom of God. He's done miracles. He's gotten a lot of people's attention. And one of the things he's been teaching about is the righteousness of the Pharisees versus the kingdom of God. And some of the things he's teaching are direct assaults against the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, the word means separated ones. And so Pharisees were people, they were sort of the religious zealots of the day who they prided themselves on meticulous observance of 
every element of the law. They were the ones who obeyed everything. And they made sure everyone knew it. Their whole identity, I mean the name Pharisee, separated ones, literally means better than you, you might say. Separated from you. Separated for God, but it turned into separated from you. And they wouldn't even have contact with people that they felt were sinful or beneath them. Like they were all about this and their whole identity was wrapped up in this. Look how great we are. And if you had asked anyone in the culture at that time, hey, who are the spiritual people among us right now? Everyone would point to them. Everyone would say, those guys. But then Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts talking about the kingdom of God. He starts talking about a different kind of righteousness. Like all this stuff's happening. That is a direct assault against everything they've built their identity on. It is a danger to them. And so they start setting traps for Jesus. How can we, how can we catch him? Because if we can show his teachings are against the law of God, we've debunked him completely and we preserve ourselves. He becomes a heretic and we never have to worry about him again. So they're always setting these traps for him. But lest you think Jesus is gullible, trust me, Jesus knows he did not go, oh, I ended up in a trap. I better answer this carefully. That was not Jesus' experience at all. So take a look at verse 37 of Luke chapter 11. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. So here's what's going on here. There were, there were ceremonially, part of those religious laws and observances and ceremonies were cleansing rituals. One of them, before they would sit down to eat, they had this whole washing ceremony they'd have to go through from elbows down, like this really elaborate thing. And this guy's brought Jesus here not just to feed him, like he's trying to trap him. They're trying to find ways of, of catching Jesus. And so here this meal starts, and Jesus, on purpose, doesn't wash his hands. It's not, he didn't forget. Jesus is fully aware of the trap and he's straight up going on the offensive in this. He knows the dinner's a setup and he's like, you aren't even ready for me. And so he on purpose doesn't do this. Well, the Pharisee sees this and he's just astonished. He's just, and probably thinking, got him, got him. I can't wait to tell my boys tomorrow. This is going to be amazing. Got him. Somebody get this on Instagram like now, because we're going to need to see this later. Like someone take a picture now, 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 now. He's like astonished by it. So Jesus, knowing that he did this on purpose, says in verse 39, the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. It's a soft word, right? Fools. I'm just fighting words. Someone in your, in your own, at your own table calls you a fool. That's fighting words, right? Well, in, in this context, he's, he's being quite literal in what he's saying. He's saying, hey, you, you who don't understand, you who have missed it all, you fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms, give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So picture it this way. He's sitting there at the table. This guy sees that Jesus didn't wash his hands. And he's thinking, you don't understand. And he looks around, he grabs a cup. He says, consider this cup. You wash the outside of this cup so much. You polish it up so it's as clean and sparkly as it could possibly be. But don't you understand the inside's dirty? Now, he's not talking about the cup, is he? 
He's talking to them about the fact that, man, you guys are, you're, you're cleaning everything and you're doing all this stuff in front of all these people, but it's the inside, it's the heart issue that's really going on right here. And he says, you want to do something awesome? You want to deal with some cleanliness issues? Here's what you need to do. Give as alms. In other words, give away. Interesting way of saying it when we understand the whole gospel, but get rid of, confess, and deal with the sin that's on the inside. Then you'll be clean. Well, they, how are they even going to do that? You can't possibly do that. So it's a, a direct affront against it. He's, he's calling the guy who is so concerned with ceremonial cleanliness on the outside, he's saying, inward, you're filthy. And then he doesn't back off. He doubles down hard. You might say he rants. And he goes on what's referred to as the three woes. He's going to do three with the Pharisees, and then he'll get to some other guys in just a minute. The three woes. He's going to say, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you, for three different reasons. And to help you understand, it's not just like a warning. The, the word woe, when he's using it here, he means horror. In other words, this, you fools. You don't understand, and if you realized where you really are in all this and what's really happening and where you're really leading people, you'd be horrified to understand how dangerous the place you're in is and how terrible the place. You are so far from God right now, you don't even understand it. It's horrifying. This is what he's saying to him. These are strong words, strong words, okay? So the first one he says is this. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, for centuries, the prophets and the word of God has been telling the people of Israel that you're going to be a refuge to people. You're going to be a nation that through you, I'm going to bless people. And there's laws written in for mercy and love and justice on behalf of the alien, the afflicted, the outsider, um, the widow, the orphan. Like, you're going to be merciful to people. You're going to take care of people. You're going to be giving to people. Your heart will be inclined in the same way that I, the Lord your God, my heart was inclined to you when you were slaves. I heard your struggling and I heard your pain and my heart was inclined to you. You are going to be the same way towards everyone else. But did that happen? Not at all. I mean, honestly, most of the prophetic writings, most of the prophets when you read in Scripture are the prophets speaking on behalf of God saying, you got fat on every blessing God gave you and you shared nothing. You helped no one. You did nothing. And he's calling these Pharisees who are supposed to be experts at the law, who should know this stuff better than anyone. And he's saying, you're not helping anyone. You're not being merciful or justice to anyone. Now, they might argue if you were to say the same thing to a church person today. Like, you're not being generous. You're not taking care of the poor. They would go, ah, I tithed. Church takes care of it. I tithe. He's like, I, I know you tithe. And these guys tithe. Please understand. I, they tithe. To their, when's the last time you and your tithe got out your spice rack? You know what I mean? Like, I should give 10% of my nutmeg. 10% of my cinnamon. Cinnamon sticks, if you want to tie those, those are expensive, but they're great in cider. So you tie some of those. But uh, it's, who does that? But they were so meticulous. Like I've done this and this and this and this. But here's the thing. The heart wasn't involved. Because when they saw issues of justice or issues of people struggling, they had no heart of sympathy turning towards them. And their mentality is basically like I gave at the office. I, I gave at the church. I've already done my part. He's like, I, I know you tithe, but you're giving money 
Your heart's nowhere near. You're doing what God told you to do, but you're not understanding the heart of it. And as a result, you think you're pleasing God. I don't need your money. That's a huge affront. Because remember, the Pharisees, what do they do when it comes to tithe? They're like ringing bells as they go to church. I'm tithing. Everybody look at me as I go tithe. Oh, my arm is so tired from carrying all this heavy stuff. I'm about to tithe because I'm going to tithe. I'm tithing a lot this week. You guys should watch. You're going to need a bigger basket. Everybody get something. Like that's the way they did it. Remember Jesus told the story of the guy who does that. And then there was the woman who only gave the two pennies. And Jesus said she gave more than this guy did. Because she was giving to honor God. This guy's just trying to get people's attention. And so he's calling them on that. Ouch, but it gets worse. Look at the next one. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Now, th- this one's a little foreign to our culture because no one wants to sit on the front row at church ever, it seems. Like, that's so rare except for these blessed people who got 10% off their tithe this week for sitting down front. The, the rest, in the, in the culture then, when you went to synagogue, the best seats, the seats of honor, the ones that they wanted, faced the congregation. You ever been old school Baptist church like what I grew up in? Remember all the assistant pastors would sit back here while the guy was preaching? Like that. And so these guys, these Pharisees, spiritual leaders going to church, they want to sit in the spot where everyone can see them. Where when they speak, as they're talking about the laws, they're talking about the prophets, as they're talking about God, they're like, everyone will see me speak. There was that one time I got there late and my back was to everybody and I had something brilliant to say and they thought it was that knucklehead next to me. That is never happening again. I'm going to sit here so they know it was me talking. And everyone knows that I'm at church. And everyone knows how spiritual and you see what they're doing? They, they turn they turn a, a, an institution that was there to teach about God, to point to God, to result in worship to God. They turn it into something that's all about themselves. And, and they're using it to like get attention. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Instead of look at God, look at God, look at God, look at God. He's like, you guys, you're building your identity on church attendance. And you're taking like church, which by the way, church, you know, this ain't about us, Right? Be it me, Sam, anyone who's on this stage, or you sitting down there, whatever seat you think is the best seat, this is not about us. This is about Jesus, about coming together to have our eyes reoriented to Jesus, to give Jesus praise, to confess the fact that we are all blow-its, but that Jesus has done it on our behalf. Like, that's what it's all about. Listen, you're taking this thing about Jesus, you've made it about you. You're not honoring me. You want to talk about earning God's favor? You're not even trying to get God's favor. You're looking for your own attention from everyone else. You want their favor, not God's. That's what you're really after. And Jesus would speak to this in John 5, He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that only comes from God? So you're just doing it for attention. And in your meticulous observance of serving God, your pride has left no room for the glory that comes from God alone. You just want to look good in front of men. Ouch. Huge affront to them. And then the last one, and this is the worst by far. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Here's why this is the worst one. In that culture, speaking of being ceremonially clean and unclean, and remember, that's what spurred this discussion. A grave or contact with a dead body instantly made you unclean. 
And there was a litany of things you had to go do to deal with that, much more than just doing laundry or washing your hands. Like there were ceremonies and rituals you had to go to because you have come into contact with a dead, decaying body or the grave or whatever. It was a big deal. And so when someone was buried, a grave was to be clearly marked so that everyone would know there was a body there. So you didn't accidentally become unclean and jeopardize your standing before God. So they would mark them really clearly. And here's what Jesus is saying about them. He's like, you're like an unmarked grave. People are following you, clinging to you, wanting to spend time with you, wanting to hang around you, and they have no idea you are damning them. That's what he's saying. You're not leading them to Jesus. You're making them dirty. Because you're not taking them to God. You're not leading them to God. You want them to follow you where Jesus would also later say that you, you guys, you're like whitewashed tombs, all polished on the outside, but filled with dead men's bones on the inside. You and your religion. And remember, they are nailing it. If you asked anyone in the culture who are the most spiritual people around, everyone would point to them. And he's like, you, you think that's what does it? That? You have no idea how off you are. Those are heavy words, right? He's in his house, by the way. If this guy shows up, by the way, if a guy like this shows up to your small group, you're kicking him out. This is what Jesus did. And then, and I love this. I love this. Verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him saying, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Okay, this is awesome. So those are the Pharisees, right? Now the lawyers or the scribes are the ones who basically write all the regulations and laws that make sure that we don't violate the laws that God also wrote. So they're experts at law and they write additional laws to protect the laws that God already gave us. So in other words, God gave the people the law and then they're giving them extra laws and extra laws and extra laws and they're just piling all these laws up on top of people. They are just experts at the law, right? And so there's a lawyer there in the room, which makes sense. These two would kind of go together a little bit here. And this lawyer, this is how you know the Jewish culture then did not honor women but should have. Because if they did, this dude's wife would never let him say this. This guy's wife would be like, shut up. Why in the world are you drawing attention to us? Just stop it. She'd be kicking him under the table. But he, for some reason, points, and, and maybe this is just, you know, out of the heart, the, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So suddenly the attention is going to come back on him. And he literally says, with that sort of like, coming at this guy in his house, he goes, well, that talks about me too. And Jesus is like, you want some? I got three woes for you too. Woe number one, verse 46, woe to you lawyers. For you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You think that you're honoring God and God's will by piling more and more and more onto people. But how much of the God's law is about justice and mercy and the love of God, and yet you wouldn't dare come along and help one of these people. You just keep piling on and then stand back and watch them fail. You're not going to come alongside and help anybody because you're all about you. You don't want to see someone else succeed. In fact, their failures make you look better. So you're not going to help them. Horror if that's the way you look at people in the church. That's why, by the way, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You know why he said that? 
Because those teachers in that day, their um, interpretation of the law, of all the stuff that you're supposed to do, it was called the yoke, their yoke. And they were putting their yoke on your neck. You are, when you follow a teacher or a rabbi, you are taking their yoke upon yourself. And so imagine the laws and the things all of these guys were saying, this is what makes you spiritual. Do this, 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 this. And this is what makes you spiritual. Don't you dare do this, this, this. Don't talk to these people. Don't go there, et cetera, et cetera. On and on and on and on. And people are just weighed down. You ever felt that way, those of you that have been in church for a long time? Just weighed down. Everybody's telling you, yeah, you need Jesus, but this and this, and you better not do that, and you better not do that. And you just, you're just weighed down. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, come to me. I'm going to give you rest. Oh, how that must have sounded to their ears. The next one, verse 47. This is a little longer, so let me read it and I'll explain it. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So the prophets were sent by God with the word of God to call the people back to a right relationship with God when they had gotten off track. So it's the prophets in the Old Testament that are saying, you guys, you're getting so puffed up thinking you're the favored ones, and you, now it's gone from favor to favorites, but, but God's favor was poured on you that you might pour it on others and be a blessing to the rest of the world, that you might be a source of, of refuge and salvation to the world around, that they might learn about me and my love through you. And instead, you hoarded it, and you took all that favor, figured you're just the favorites and no one else counts, and you've done none of these things. And so the prophets are constantly calling them out for their sin over and over and over. Well, it wasn't a popular message. I mean, let's just be honest. Does any of us enjoy being called out on our sin, right? And the more prideful you are, the worse that is, right? And so these guys who are consumed with pride, these prophets are coming, and the next thing you know, it's gotten to the point that they're killing the prophets who are bringing the very word of God to God's people. They're killing them. And then he's saying to these guys in his day, you think that you're now upholding the word of God and you built tombs to the prophets that got killed, but you're doing the same thing. You're just as guilty. And it's as if the word of God came with those prophets, your forefathers killed them, but now you've built the tombs because you think you're honoring them, but all you're doing is you're just keeping the message buried. You just buried it. They killed them, you buried it, you're just as guilty. These are the people who are writing the law, telling them this is how you achieve favor with God. This is their job. And Jesus is telling them, you're keeping God's word and God's will from them. And then he says the last one, which is again the harshest. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. He's saying Israel, and, and especially leaders, you were the chosen nation of God. He gave you his word. You were the vessel, the avenue, the key, if you will, to unlock salvation for the masses. And you've thrown the key, you've taken it from them. You're not leading anyone into salvation. And then he says, including you. You haven't gone in either. In other words, 
you're not saved. Most spiritual people in the culture at that time. And Jesus says, you're not part of my kingdom. That's incredible. So I'm sure it went well. Right? (laughs) How does it go? Verse 53, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. And as you know, this will intensify, and it will intensify, and it'll become more than let's just catch him in a false teaching. It'll be, let's kill him. Just like the other prophets, let's kill him. Jesus is telling them, all this stuff that you do, and you do more than anyone around here, you've built your identity on it, and it's damning you to hell. Now let me ask you, Does Jesus care about our behavior and our obedience? Does Jesus care about our behavior and our obedience? Yes, he wrote the Sermon on the Mount. If anything, he raised the bar. He said, don't commit adultery. If you lust in your heart, that's adultery. But the point in all of those things was to point people to their understanding that they need a savior. Not that they need to work harder or learn more laws or do a better job. At no point in this teaching is his intent, speaking to those Pharisees, to say, so try harder, boys. At no point in every area it should have broadcast to everyone. If we're doing better than anyone at this and we are damned to hell, what can we possibly do? And he would say, exactly. My name's Jesus. And I'm here because of that. And that's what Paul, going back to Colossians, wants us to stand on. Does obedience matter? Yes. But our obedience is an act of worship to God. And if we build our identity on how good we're doing or the things that we don't do, that's a false identity to build on. That's a, a man, who should build their identity on that anyway? Because the honest truth is this. Sometimes we're doing well, and sometimes we're not doing so well. So I guess our identity is always a variable, right? No, the Bible says that we can be assured that we are part of the family of God. But it's not because of us. It's all because of all of those things that Jesus did perfectly well. And he's taken his resume and he said, I'm going to give you this, Jeff. I'm going to give you my robe with my, my credentials all over it. I'm going to wrap you in that, and I'm going to take from you all the sin that you committed, and I'm going to deal with that. How's that trade sound, Jeff? And, and the response, understanding this, the idea is he wants us to get to a place of brokenness that understands that this is not about us, but also a place of just awe at how good and how loving he is because that's the place that obedience that actually matters starts and nothing else matters starting it anywhere else doesn't matter you're just going to make a bunch of prideful people or a bunch of completely dejected people who can never actually pull it off but jesus wants worshipful grateful people that's why he says in that text that we read at the beginning walk in the way that you received him abounding in thanksgiving This is about him. It's not about us. Now, in closing, let me me address something here. Usually, when I'm talking about um, legalism, I'm usually, we we live in a culture that's heavily churched, and, and southern Oregon, though we're in the Pacific Northwest, 
Southern Oregon is kind of like the Bible Belt in most places. It really is. It reminds me a lot of where I grew up in North Carolina. Heavily churched, high Bible IQs for the most part, especially compared to other areas. Um, and what we tend to deal with most of the time, although this is, this is changing and from day to day, but what we tend to deal with a lot of times is religion and Pharisee mentalities and, and people who think they're saved because they grew up in church, but they've never actually gotten a relationship with Jesus, that kind of stuff. I don't deal with a lot of prostitution, I don't deal with a lot of um, meth addicts, though that, that exists and that is out there. And honestly, I, I wish those kind of people would be more and more drawn to our church. And maybe through teachings like this, it creates an environment where they can be. Um, but the vast majority of my experience over the last eight or so years here as the lead pastor at Heritage is dealing with legalism. And, and much of the teaching, if not all of the teaching that I've ever done on legalism, um, basically is like this. Me standing in front of you guys going, hey, everybody listen, look at me, look at me. Stop being legalistic. Stop being legalistic. Stop being legalistic. And then also like, and stop doing that to other people. Stop judging them for this. Stop judging them for this. Stop judging them for this. And so we have done this through all sorts of spectrums. We've um, offended all sorts of people. Um, and there's been a lot of times where the teachings that we've done along that, that, that line, because the, look, the gospel's offensive, church. And there's been times that we've drawn these sorts of lines and we've taught these sorts of things. And, and even people who are dear to me that I love that are still wrestling with some of these things have been like, I just can't deal with this and they've left. And so it's always been a really hard thing to deal with to approach this. Like when we've talked about alcohol or rock music or whatever the case might be, it's not easy. It's hard. And Paul admits it, doesn't he? He says, there's an element of wisdom to this. It sounds right. There's gonna be a struggle. But here's the thing. In the letter in Colossians, his approach with regards to legalism, he's not talking to the legalists, I don't think, in this text. The legalists are trying to talk to the church. He's talking to the church. So, so let this message be a little bit different. Church, listen to this. This is what I think Paul's saying. Stop listening to them. Let's assume the legalists are outside the walls right now. Paul would say, stop listening to them. Stop buying into it. Stop listening to those that are saying you need Jesus and. Stop listening to those who are going to judge you for different things based on convictions they have or traditions they've been taught or ways that they've been raised that are not clearly lined out in the scriptures as ways that we honor God. And even in that, don't build your identity on those things that you're doing. Build your identity on one thing. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness and none of those other things. And anybody that wants to talk to you and pull you to some different foundation, stop listening to them. Stop and look to Jesus. And, and I'm telling you that the difference, it's not subtle, it's massive. Because you look to Jesus and you start realizing like, man, I don't want to, I don't want to build my identity in the things I'm doing well. I don't feel like I'm doing well most of the time. So why, why do I want to fool everybody else and build my identity on a fake identity? Because I know the real me. And then we get in the Bible and we see Jesus. He's talking to his disciples one day, remember? And they're, they're all angling for position. They want the best seats. And they go, in the kingdom, can we sit on the left and on the right? And Jesus says to me, he uses a funny language. He says, speaking of cups, he says, can you drink of the cup that I'm about to drink of? And he wasn't talking about just some chalice at a fancy dinner. Later in the Garden of Gethsemane, he'll be praying and he'll say to his father, if there's any way that this cup from, can pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but thine. 
See, the Old Testament history has lots of references, especially in the prophetic writings, that talk about the wrath of God as a cup to be drunk. That all of our sin and failures can be visualized, if you will, as this cup, and in it is the wrath of God to be poured out on sinners like you and I. And Jesus is the one who stepped in and took that cup. The uncleanliness that was on the inside of the cup. And Jesus drank it all. And on the cross said, it is finished. And then he looks to us. The reason that cup exists in the first place. The reason he went through the beatings and the abandonment and the stabbing and the mocking and the spitting. The punching, the whipping, everything that Jesus went through. It's because of us. You want to make anything about you in church? That's what you make about you. And he does that, drinks the cup dry, and then turns to us and says, I will give you my righteousness. Just put your faith in me. Why? Because you do good most days. No. It's because he loves me. Because he's better than me. Because he's good he's righteous because he has an unconditional love we can't fathom and listen church if you want to see your kids obey if you want to grow in obedience you start with a passion and love for jesus and let it come from there because once god gets your heart he's got you he doesn't want your behavior he doesn't want your external he wants your heart so may these understandings because now we're going into christian living in the next part of this text but never forget the foundation for all of this. It's not because we want to be better. It's not because we want God to love us more. He's already poured out all of his love on you. And he's already drank all of the wrath destined for us himself. And that understanding should fuel and awaken passions in us that lead us to worship Jesus in every way, including obedience. That's what Jesus desires. Amen? Don't let anyone take you off that. He says, don't let them judge you. People are going to judge you if you stand on that. They'll always, they did it in Jesus' day, they do it now, they'll do it to the end until Jesus appears in person and fixes everybody's theology. But until this day, you make your stand on the rock of Jesus Christ and let whatever storm may come, you'll still be standing. Don't let anyone take you off. It is not Jesus plus anything, it's Jesus, period. Amen? So will you bow your eyes with me? And let's take just a moment to acknowledge that. Father, will you just ignite our hearts again? Father, help us to just be drawn to you, to again remember what you have done for us, that the effort is not on our shoulders. You, you say it yourself. Your, your burden is easy. Your yoke is light. Lord, may we be drawn to you and just worship you because you have been so incredibly good to us. Will you awaken your passions, God? Will you awaken emotion? Will you fuel worship? And may we honor you for who you are and for what you've done. In Jesus' holy name.